Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me today is our special guest, Ken Pyle. Ken is a partner of a security company called Cyber, and he's a graduate professor of cybersecurity at Chesapeake College. Ken, thanks for uh, joining the show today. How's, how you going? Yeah, man. Yeah, so you and I actually first got connected because of your participation in IoT Village. You're one of our speakers, and some of the stuff you're doing is really, really rad. So I asked you to come on the show and the other day when you and I were chatting about, hey, where, where, you know, where should we take this conversation? Because there's, there's so many interesting things that you and I could talk about. Uh, you, there were several things you said that I wrote down that I, I wanted to explore today. But the first one I wanted to start with was that you made this statement. And I love this. And I want you to expand on this idea. But you said that most people want to learn the way they're supposed to do something, but without asking why. So can you tell me a little bit about that? First of all, what do you mean by that? What is the problem and how do we solve that problem? I've always found that like, I, I, I'm an old school engineer. I've been doing this since like the eighties, literally like hacking. And it's one of those things where people always want this easy way out or they take for granted that somebody else has either asked this question or has this faith that everybody else is doing their job and I don't have to worry about things. And it turns into this weird sort of, phenomenon where you can start weaving and identifying these holes and gaps that exist in all sorts of things and the emergent properties of like these simple rules and gaps that occur. And you can start putting together the really weird machines of hacking and all of those things that people never thought about. I'm one of those people that, you know, when I was a kid, I used to take every toy apart, look at it and go, let me put it back together again. Let's see what this thing does. Like, what can you do with it? And it's one of those things where like, Hacking, you know, I want to say I teach my students this like hacking isn't me giving you the answer. Doing this and being part of this field and being responsible isn't me going, hey, here is the root password. How many things do we actually depend on in the hacking field itself? Well, somebody else already wrote that. Sure, but somebody had to find it first, right? There's all these rules that we had or these ways of looking at things that we just take for granted and go, um, somebody else is going to look at that or somebody else has looked under the hood or, or all of these weird things. And people, you know, I, I jokingly say, everybody wants to be, win the Kentucky Derby, but nobody wants to be the horse. Right. <laughs> like you don't want to be like yeah. whipped to death to get over there, but somebody has got to get across the finish line. And I don't want to be the person getting carried. <laughs> right. And so you're bringing up an interesting idea here, this idea that uh, of, I guess, I'm not putting words in your mouth or I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but of, of complacency, right? Where we, yeah. uh, not we, but people tend to think like, oh, someone else was looking there and maybe they haven't. And so do you think the distinction that is being drawn here is between 
people who are in the hacking community versus not in the hacking community, or even within the hacking community, do you feel that that complacency exists? I think it exists. I think it exists everywhere. Yeah. And that's why we can operate the way we can, because that extra 30 seconds of like, make your password a little more complex, do something else, check before you click that 30 seconds of like someone not thinking about it or me being able to control the factors with which they process that information or it gets executed or whatever else. That's really what it's all about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I know it's a little bit of a far out answer, but I mean, it's, it's, and it's well-founded like that. That's where we live. That's where that convenience versus security thing. We think we complain about all the time. Mm -hmm. That's where we live. And that's, if you understand that gap and you see where it exists and how it could be exploited, as I say about the cloud, the cloud is just publicly managed, poorly secured shadow IT infrastructure. All right. <laughs> and if you think about it, if you think about that as everybody has to obey the same rules, there are still lazy human beings out there. There are still misconfigurations. There are always flaws out there. And if you look at the system holistically and say the cloud is just a larger IT infrastructure, the same holes exist, but they also obey all the same rules. So let me, let me ask you about that. This, the word used in particular is one that I use a lot too. And I, I think it's such an important idea of holistically. Like we have to think holistically about how security, these issues in security, they can't, they shouldn't be considered in isolation. Like two vulnerabilities. Yes. <laughs> they actually might be way worse if you combine yeah. them, right? And so that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. I mean, if the thing I talked about at DEF CON with IoT Village was, has anyone ever thought about what this thing does and what it does to all these other things that nobody thought about. Like, think about everybody made the argument and, and the argument with IPv6 scanning was, or identifying of things at scale was, how could you possibly scan more IPs than exist of atoms in the universe? And you go, well, if you turn that problem around and it's supposed to be so many IP addresses that we all depend on DNS, if you just attack DNS, you've got a master list of what's already there. I know that sounds weird. I don't want to get too technical, but it's a matter of just looking at the problem from a different perspective and taking what you're given and figuring out what you can do with it. Right, right. Yeah, I was uh, talking with a, a buddy of mine recently who he had this consulting project, you know, many, many years ago where it, this wasn't a security consulting project, but it was this idea of looking at something the other way around. And he was working for an airport and the airport was talking about, well, it takes uh, this many minutes for the passengers to get off the plane and get to baggage claim. And it takes this many minutes for the bags to get there. And the bags, uh, the people were getting there first. And so the customer, the passengers were getting really frustrated. And so they said, how do we get the bags there faster? And he said, and his answer was, well, why don't we make the people get there slower? Yes, exactly, right? Right. I, I, again, it's a way of framing the idea and saying, again, I, I, I'm, I, I always talk about being an iconoclast. Like if it's a good idea, it withstands all of scrutiny. And if you understand the rules of a system or the factors you have to meet, those things are a sliding scale. Like you said, how do I get the bags there faster? Well, we could also get the passengers there slower. And now we minimize this problem. Again, that ends up being one an interesting property you can exploit. But on the other hand, when you look at that as a laziness problem, right, or a convenience problem, a lot of the things we do like that, and a lot of things I go after, a lot of things I do research on are those problems we kind of spackled over and said, we'll come back to that one later. Mm -hmm. And no one ever came back to it. Yeah. So let me, uh, let me ask you about what you're seeing on the front lines in higher education now. So you're a graduate professor. So you're seeing students who are pursuing security as a career. They're pursuing advanced degrees. 
there's obviously a lot of discussion around how there's the, the these gaps in talent, there's shortage in talent. Do you think that the narrative that there's shortage is true? And if so, are these gaps being met? Like, what, what are you seeing from the students that are entering the field pretty soon? I think in the forensics fields, because I come from a forensics background as well, they used to call it the CSI effect, where forensics was this really small little field of scientific importance and whatever. And then the show CSI came out and it became pop science and it became a much different sort of field and field type. and not bad thing, good thing. It's a good thing that there's more exposure, but it changes these dynamics of the field. It's the same way we have in security. Like I said, I, I teach people the way of thinking more than I do the technical part of it, because again, it's the, I can teach you to fish or I can hand you a fish. I would rather teach you the fish because that works forever. If you understand the method, if you understand how to look at things, how to hack mental, like the mind, pro the process, lateral thinking, critical analysis, you know, pragmatic thinking, that's what you want to teach people. But everybody is getting sold this, hey, you're going to make $90 million a year via this and what have you. And it's not a realistic expectation. And that's going to cause disappointment. If you think about that and you have all these people getting this disappointment from a field and we're training them to do these crazy spectacular things that are not that hard to do, we are kicking a potential disenchantment problem down the road, a dissatisfaction problem down the road. So what's the solution to that? How do we, how do we undie that? I don't know. I wish I knew. Like I'm trying to work on mm. it. Like that's why I'm teaching. <laughs> okay. like, I'm one of the reasons I'm teaching is not because I, you know, I need a job. It's like, I want to tackle these big problems. I think I got some ideas. I don't think I have the greatest ideas, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And it's me trying to say like, how do, how do you create somebody who can do this stuff? Like, I know a lot of smart people in the field. I reach out to them privately. I talk to them because I want to see how, like, I, what's the secret sauce? What's the way of doing it? Hmm. Interesting. Now, you talked about this idea uh, when you and I were chatting the other day about the way you phrased it was really interesting. You said, you know, read the manual <laughs> throw and throw it out yeah. and try it for yourself. So tell, tell me about that. I, I, yeah. I, I, so I, I've had a lot of weird jobs in the field, and one of them was working for like a manufacturing company. And again, I've been doing reverse engineering since I was a kid doing this stuff. And it's like you read the manual and you learn all of the ways somebody has been trained to do this and what the intended purpose of everything is. A good friend of mine, he's a professor with mine while working a long time. His name's John Vanderbeer. So he always had used to have this, he always has a saying of like, it's operating as designed, but not as intended, or and understanding that difference. So you go out and read the manual and you learn these are all the documented features, these are all the things you're supposed to do with it. Great. Throw the manual out because now you only know how it works. What are the things nobody thought about? Because when, again, going back to the manufacturing thing, I worked in the manufacturing field who had engineering and you found out the people writing the manuals, the people who are writing the documentation are rarely the people actually designing or putting the thing together. And the rule is essentially they are designing for someone to go onto an assembly line and put this thing together in a simple way repeatedly, which means Anybody can unmake it. Anybody could take it apart. If you can put it together, you take it apart and it breaks into smaller parts. If you understand what those smaller parts are, all a machine is, is like an emergent property of a bunch of simple machines. Sure. It always works that way. Yeah. Figure out what you can do with it. I love the way you, you framed it. The phrase in particular, you said it's working as designed, but not as intended. And I talk about that idea a lot myself. Actually, yesterday I was doing a keynote and I was talking about this idea exactly of uh, abusing functionality, right? Like this, this form is supposed to do this thing, but the developers didn't expect that it might be used in an attack in this other way. <laughs> so what do you think is the remedy for that? How do people, they, they, int they intended in a certain way, so they designed it to meet the intent, but there's a discrepancy. How does an organization deal with that? 
discern between the difference between intent and stated intent. Because everybody says we're going to do we're going to do security or we're going to do all these other things, and really, what are companies after? Checking the box to make sure they're compliant, and if something bad happens, they're covered. Again, I lecture on this, I teach this. I like it's something that's known in the industry. We keep repeatedly kicking these cans down there. Like I said, we have to start thinking like things are going to live a lot longer, and bad people have a purpose for it. Like how many people thought back in when SCADA, when Siemens designed SCADA, how many people thought? you could bring down the internet or cause major damage from flipping a few lights on, on a bridge somewhere, right? And how many people thought that would be interconnected and all this other, so we keep taking this technology and like fixing the problem, fixing the glitch or something else and weird problems start to develop. And you find out, you know, I, I'm an old AS400 guy. It was like the first thing I learned how to hack when I was a kid was an AS400. And you find out I'm a real nut for it because the people who wrote that, the people who designed all those systems, are dead, or the person who wrote the component retired 30 years ago when their pudding is, you know, brain's pudding now. So you go back and say, like, what are we doing? You find out we are just trying to keep this technology limping along, hoping we're going to fix the problem eventually, and it never gets fixed. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. But we build backward compatibility in. You bring up an interesting idea that I'd love to get your opinion on. And maybe you have even data on this, but so you brought up this idea that many organizations think about security as an exercise in compliance. Like, show me the box, I'll check the box. Like that—that that is actually the way that most organizations think about this. Not all organizations, certainly. There are pioneering ones, ones who are you know really getting security right. They don't think that way. What would you say? And it's okay for just shooting from the hip without actual numbers. Yeah, yeah, what would you say is the distribution? This is not my professional opinion. This is Ken's personal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am not your lawyer. Seek legal advice. Right. All that. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, how, how, do, how do you think it distributes in terms of, are we talking like 80% of say, let's say companies think that way, that compliance is security? And is it changing? Do you think? We always say this because we want to say that we're with it and doing it, but we wouldn't have, keep having the same problems over and over again. If the honest answer for this was given. Do I think we're doing better? I think things are becoming much more obvious and the implications of what we've done are becoming a lot more impactful and like it's still, I say it's spilling out into the streets, but companies can't sit there and say, well, it's not my problem or we don't have to consider that because that's not really our product. Again, if we think as professionals ethically, well, we all have to, we all say, we want to think holistically. We want to be proactive. But if I find this problem and you're like, not our product or, well, you only have, you need something else to do that. That's not being ethical. It's not thinking holistically. It's not responsible. And as we go to quote unquote the cloud, again, just poorly managed shadow IT infrastructure, are we doing the right thing by people? Are we being responsible professionals or are we playing tribes? And that's the way I see it. If you don't, and again, I've been around so long doing this. It's the same thing it was back in the 80s on dial up with VBSs as it is today. Right. It's crazy. So let, let's talk about that idea of being responsible professionals. So you, in addition to your consulting company and being a professor, you're a researcher as well, which is part of you know, how you got involved with IoT Village. So tell me a little bit about the, the talk that you have been working on. I know there's certain details that you can't really share, but and when, what it, as you talk about it, I'd like to talk about your opinion on how even the process of responsible disclosure and the relationship with security researchers, like, how is that changing over time? I've been doing this a really long time, and I've been on a lot of sides of this. I do consulting on how to run a bug bounty program or how to do responsible disclosure. And it's one of those things where, again, it's like the compliance thing where there's these rules that we say they are that we have to operate by. And here's are the actual rules that people operate by. 
and again, we don't think about what happens. So my, what I was talking about at IoT Village was there are these dynamic DNS and self-registration services, these things that when you, buy, when you buy this device, it goes into your network so that you don't have to worry about any of this. It just goes out into the cloud and this thing operates. Well, it has been anchored on these core old technologies that we keep trying to fix or secure, but when they were designed, they were never intended for this. So what happens is we have accumulated all these problems where when this thing registers itself as part of this larger cloud infrastructure, what it is actually doing is providing a hyper accurate map of the internet, vulnerabilities, and a lot of other things because it's the cloud. It always has to be on. It has to be doing these things. And in order for it to operate, these core technologies have to always be turned on. The problem is they are fundamentally flawed and there are problems nobody thought about back in 1970, whatever, that we would be using in 2020, whatever. And that's all I'm after. I'm going, what did they not think about? Here are the rules by all which all things operate. Let's see the weird stuff you can do with it. Like, that's my thing. I enjoy that. Like, give me the esoteric, give me a minimal amount of things to do it with and I'll do it. That's the challenge. I like it. So help me explain this to my nephew. All right, good. Who is 14. What, what's a metaphor? How, how do we simplify this problem to like a slice of pizza? Everybody in the world thought that their phone directory and their phone book for their company was private. And all DNS really is, is a phone book for the internet. These IP addresses turn into these names. Well, everybody took for granted that that phone book will forever be private, or we wouldn't mind sharing the contents of that to everybody. But as the borders got fuzzier and the internet got bigger and we made it scaled cloud infrastructure, what we have effectively done is published our private phone book and the way to contact everything or map things out or where people's phone numbers were for these days that you were never supposed to see for anybody to look up if you know how to ask for it. And then turning that, what the emergent property of that is, is that essentially can be operated as a giant botnet a giant archaeological dig of the internet that in 30 years, somebody else can look at and say, we never knew what this network looked like internally. But if we look at these old records we have, we can tell everything that happened, even when it was online and offline. There are all these weird emergent properties from, we shouldn't have published DNS privately, or private DNS addresses or whatever, out to the internet for everybody to look at. Okay, so there's an assumption that this quote unquote phone book was private. It's now proven not to be private. And because people can get access to the quote unquote phone numbers in the phone book, they now can understand the way that a network might be designed and then use that information in reconnaissance to execute an attack. I can watch how your network administrator set up controls, your antivirus, your backup, and watch them as they do it over time because bad habits emerge. Interesting. So you can see patterns. Yes, you, I can figure out patterns. Or if you have like a cloud infrastructure and you have an integrator putting it in, they all obey the same rules of the same bad habits. They use the same passwords. They have the same problem everybody else does. They use the same IP addresses. They use the same equipment. And they don't update. You put all those things together and you go, all I really know need at that point is an entry point or a way to trick them or a way to turn this phone book. Think about it this way. If I had a phone book of everybody's phone numbers, they have to be online. The phone system has to be up 24-7. When you realize the phone system has to be up 24-7 and that this phone has to be able to talk to this thing all the time, you understand that that relationship means a lot. If you own the phone line and you can tell when it's being used, that's all you need. You just need a way to tap it. Figure out how to tap it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
poke holes in the metaphor. Maybe there's a different metaphor here. <laughs> Maybe there is. Uh, what's mixed metaphors? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, this is, by the way, this is what, what I went through when I was writing my book was like every idea, I just beat it up, beat it up. How do I simplify it? So is the metaphor that I'm hearing you describe maybe less about a phone book and more about like there's a room and people assume that no one knows what's going on in the room. It's private in the room. And then later we find out that, oops, there was a big ass window and people could just watch what's going on in the room. So, so what is hacking? What is reverse engineering? What is forensics? I have a black box. I have no idea what's inside of it. What's cryptography? Same idea. I have this thing and I don't know what's inside of it. But if I can feed it stuff or figure out what it's telling me, I can figure out, or maybe I don't need to get it exact. Maybe I just need to be able to understand the rules that I'll go through here and I can figure out how to make them work in my favor. Like I'm a big, I'm a big nut for math, like game theory, cryptography, huge stuff. And it, again, it's the underlying mathematical theory of our field. And if you understand what the prisoner's dilemma does, what effect that has on whether or not you should pay ransom or ask for a negotiator. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me what is prisoner's dilemma? Tell me about that. You know, prisoner's dilemma is, do we cooperate? You, you know, two people go into a room, you know, get broken up. And if you both cooperate and stay silent, you both go to jail for one year. If one of you turns on the other one, the other person goes to jail for 20 years and you get off scot-free. If you both turn on each other, you get like five years. It's a payoff matrix game. It's like, if you've ever seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind, it's, it's what John Nash worked on. And you go, well, what's the optimal thing to do? What is the mathematically most advantageous outcome or a strategy you can take to do something. It's like the Monty Hall game. Ransomware is the Monty Hall game. You know this one, right? You're on, let's make a deal. They say, pick a door. I'm going to open one door and behind it is a goat. Now you have to decide whether you're going to switch the door you picked and see if the car is in there, or you can keep your, keep your, uh, your door that you picked. The mathematically correct answer is to always switch doors because 66% of the time you will win. What does that mean with ransomware? If you get ransomed and you can't afford to pay the ransom, what do you do? Do you try to come up with money or do you say, I want to see what's behind door number three? Go back and say, I would like to see if you will give me a better number. If you're compromised and your business is going to be dead, they're going to publish anything anyway. You lose nothing. You have no assurance of anything anyway. But if you do that, you're going to try to drive the price down on it, which helps everybody because then they can ask for less money. It's why ransomware gangs are saying, don't go to the cops and tell them anything and don't ask for a negotiator because it's obviously working. And if everybody in the field works together, if we cooperate, if we look at this as a cooperative game and we all impose cost on ransomware gangs by asking for a negotiator, we reach a Nash equilibrium or we come with a what we call dominant strategy. It's, it sounds so silly and stupid, but you're like, that's the math. It works that way. So let me, let me try to simplify what you're saying here and make sure I understand it. So what you're saying is that when it comes to ransom, whether we can pay it or not, we should always try to negotiate the price down. Yeah. Why? It imposes cost. That's a game theory thing. If I make it more expensive of a proposition or less profitable, your, your argument about do I get the baggage there faster or I slow things down? I can drive the price down in one direction and I can impose cost on ransomware gangs where they don't want to do that anymore. So what happens when things become less profitable? Ransomware is not the problem. The problem is cybercrime is profitable. Crime is profitable. They are just figuring out what we can have. It used to be about getting access. Can I get admin? And they're like, well, we can't do that anymore. Let's see what we can do. Why don't we just destroy all the data a user could get to? And now they're like, well, we can't do that anymore because there's controls, but we can steal data. Let's see what we can get. Can we monetize that? It's not complex. Just think 
if I had access to your company in a minimal amount of things, how could I turn that into money? Yeah. That's it. I've always thought ransomware is really fascinating and almost to the point of like, I'm like, am I glorifying this? Because I just think from as an, as an entrepreneur, as, as an innovator, I look at that, I'm like, that is, that is innovation right there. It's taking two things that exist that are effective, you know, the idea of ransom, the idea of encrypting things through malware and combine them. And that's, it's incredible. I'm an academic. I'm a nerd. I'm a hacker at heart. I hate the player. I don't hate the game. I think it's amazing. I go, man, like, you know, it's a good idea when you're like, man, that was really stupid. And I could have thought of that. That's what that ransomware is. You're like, I, who could have thought, like, we used to call it malware or whatever else. And we had, you know, we had the Melissa virus and all these things in turn of the century that blew things up. And then people went, well, we can do this with all these other things. And it just ended up being more money. And you go, man, ransoming stuff. Whoever would have thought people would put all their information on the internet and any dope who could trick somebody could make a million bucks on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because it's like like so many things in life. If we take the ethics out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we analyze it. We can, it's ransomware is objectively a good sound business strategy. Now the ethics are poor, exactly. but you know, you're seeing a, a opportunity in the marketplace that can be solved through technology. And, and I think what's so important about this topic is that we have to realize the attackers are always innovating. Ransomware wasn't a thing. Like, I don't know what, five years ago, or I mean, definitely 10 years ago, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. And ha- now it is. And now it's really probably no, maybe one of, if not the number one issue that most companies worry about. Right. Yeah. I, again, who would have thought of that? Well, that's the problem. If we're going to say we're proactive, if we're saying we're holistic, we do threat modeling, all these other things, why don't we actually do it? Right? Right. <laughs> why don't we do it? Like people, again, people want to go on social media and have these great, I have like, great. Somebody's got to do the work. It's not getting done. And again, everybody wants to win the Kentucky Derby. Nobody wants to be the horse. I'm like, I don't, I don't care about being famous. I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm somebody who wants to see how fast I can run the Kentucky Derby, right? Like jump on my back. I'll take you somewhere, but it's not what I'm after. Right, right. Awesome. Well, Ken, you're the man. Thank you for all these ideas. <laughs> Thank you, man. You're awesome. <laughs> As we wrap up here, is there any last parting wisdom you want to leave with our audience or anything you want to share with them that you got coming up? Learn to be an iconoclast, learn to be pragmatic and learn, I'll put it this way. You want a good place to start hacking? Read Musashi's Dakota, the 21 precepts of the Dakota. It's like the ultimate hacking guide. And it's real minimal. My, my school, Chestnut Hill College, is having a cybersecurity conference uh, in a couple of weeks. Would love to have you guys out. Would have people out. We're going to have some interesting lineup of speakers. You know, it, and, and basically, uh, anybody ever has, wants to talk shop or just trade ideas, I'm, uh, I'm known as a voluminous speaker and texter, and I will always answer you. <laughs> so anybody wants to talk shop, that's how I learn. It's how we're supposed to operate. We're supposed to cooperate and talk to each other and let each other what's going on. I think that's an important thing to do. No doubt about it. And here you are sharing ideas and insights. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Ken Pyle, you're the man. <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you for being here. And thank you for speaking at, uh, at IoT Village. You, you are- Hope to do it again, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right, everybody. If you want to learn more about this episode, you want to request to appear yourself for guests, just head over to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, 
and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.